Have you ever had the eerie experience of clearly recognizing someone on the street whom you knew without a doubt could not be there as that person was miles away at the time, or even more disturbing? Have you ever come face to face with your own double? If so, you may have encountered the doppelganger. This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I've collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. as the Wraith in Scotland, the Fetch in Ireland, the Etheric Double, and by numerous other names throughout the world, the Doppelganger is perhaps the most perplexing of all apparitions. Consider the following case as recorded by the lady who experienced it. On January the 23rd or 24th, 1881, between two and three in the afternoon, I saw an apparition of the living when I was ill in bed at my own home. There was in the room a nurse seated at the fire. We had been quiet, but I had not been sleeping. I saw my husband come into the room in a very quick and agitated manner. His face was white, and his features were twitching. He came right up to my side and stood by me, looking at me earnestly. He was dressed in his ordinary clothes, his hat was off, and I had not the least idea that it was not his ordinary self. He had in one hand a letter with a very broad black border torn open. I waited for him to speak. Instead of doing so, he suddenly turned and went away. I did not see him go out of the door. When I realized that he was gone, I called him, saying, Come back. What is the matter? The nurse turned and said, What is it? Do you want anything? I said that I wanted my husband to return and to tell me what was in the letter. She said, You have been dreaming. There's been nobody in the room. I answered, You have been asleep. My husband has just been here, and he has a letter containing bad news. I insisted upon her going down and asking him to come back. She did not return for about a quarter of an hour. Then she said no one had been in the room, so I must have been dreaming. I was to calm myself, and my husband would come presently. Nothing would induce me to believe that I had not really seen him, and I was too weak to be calm. I begged her to go down again, and my husband's sister came upstairs. She said, He has not been upstairs at all. You have been dreaming. She laughed and tried to put me at my ease, but her manner was unnatural. My husband did not come up 
for quite three hours when he declared that he had not been in the room, that at the time I saw him he was, as a matter of fact, out of the house, and that the postman had not been to the house that afternoon. I was obliged to be contented for the time. A fortnight later, when I was stronger enough, I asked him to tell me the truth. I was certain that I had been in some way deceived. He said it was absolutely true that he had been out, and that the postman had not come. But the groom had met the postman, and given my husband the black-edged letter that I saw, which he had torn open in the way I saw and it contained the news of the suicide by hanging of a favorite cousin who had been a playfellow of my husband's when a child. When he received this shock, I received it too. And then there is the case of a professor at a college in Berlin, who, as preserved by Catherine Crow in The Night Side of Nature, one day addressed his class, saying that instead of his usual lecture, he should relate to them a circumstance which the preceding evening had occurred to himself. He then told them that as he was going home that last evening, he had seen his own image, or double, on the other side of the street. He looked away and tried to avoid it, but finding it still accompanied him, he took a short cut home in hopes of getting rid of it, wherein he succeeded, till he came opposite his own house, when he saw it at the door. It rang, the maid opened, it entered, she handed it a candle, and as the professor stood in amazement on the other side of the street, he saw the light passing the windows as it wound its way up to his own chamber. He then crossed over and rang. The servant was naturally dreadfully alarmed on seeing him, but without waiting to explain, he ascended the stairs. Just as he reached his own chamber, he heard a loud crash, and on opening the door, they found no one there. But the ceiling had fallen in, and his life was thus saved. The servant corroborated this statement to the students. An even more intriguing example of a doppelganger occurring in the late 1700s was recorded by Miss Crow. The apprentice or assistant of a respectable surgeon in Glasgow, writes Miss Crow, was known to have had an illicit connection with a servant girl who somewhat suddenly disappeared. No suspicion, however, seems to have been entertained of foul play. It appears rather to have been supposed that she had retired for the purpose of being confined, and consequently no inquiries were made about her. Glasgow was, at that period, a very different place to what it is at present in more respects than one. 
and among its peculiarities was the extraordinary strictness with which the observance of the Sabbath was enforced, insomuch that nobody was permitted to show themselves in the streets or public walks during the hours dedicated to the church services, and there were actually inspectors appointed to see that this regulation was observed and to take down the names of defaulters. At one extremity of the city, there is some open ground of rather considerable extent on the north side of the river called the Green, where people sometimes resort for air and exercise, and where lovers not unfrequently retire to enjoy as much solitude as the proximity to so large a town can afford. One Sunday morning, the inspectors of public piety above alluded to, having transversed the city and extended their perquisitions as far as the lower extremity of the green, where it was bounded by a wall, observed a young man lying on the grass, whom they immediately recognized to be the surgeon's assistant. They, of course, inquired why he was not at church and proceeded to register his name in their books but instead of attempting to make any excuse for his offense, he only rose from the ground, saying, I am a miserable man. Look in the water. He then immediately crossed a stile which divided the wall and led to a path extending along the side of the river toward Rutherglen Road. They saw him cross the stile, but not comprehending the significance of his words, instead of observing him further, they naturally directed their attention to the water, where they presently perceived the body of a woman. Having, with some difficulty, dragged it ashore, they immediately proceeded to carry it into town, assisted by several other persons, who by this time had joined them. It was now about one o'clock, and as they passed through the streets, they were obstructed by the congregation that was issuing from one of the principal places of worship, and as they stood for a moment to let them pass, they saw the surgeon's assistant issue from the church door. As it was quite possible for him to have gone round some other way and got there before them, they were not much surprised. He did not approach them, but mingled with the crowd while they proceeded on their way. On examination, the woman proved to be the missing servant girl. She was pregnant, and had evidently been murdered with a surgeon's instrument, which was found entangled among her clothes. Upon this, in consequence of his known connection with her and his implied self-accusation to the inspectors, the young man was apprehended on suspicion of being the guilty party and tried upon the circuit. He was the last person seen in her company immediately previous to her disappearance, and there was altogether such strong presumptive evidence against him as corroborated by what occurred on the green would have justified a verdict of guilty. But, strange to say, this last, most important item in the evidence failed, and he established an incontrovertible alibi. 
it being proved beyond all possibility of doubt that he had been in the church from the beginning of the service to the end of it. He was therefore acquitted, while the public were left in great perplexity to account as they could for this extraordinary discrepancy. The young man was well known to the inspectors, and it was in broad daylight that they had met him and placed his name in their books. Neither, it must be remembered, were they seeking for him, nor thinking of him, nor of the woman about whom there existed neither curiosity nor suspicion. Least of all would they have sought her where she was, but for the hint given to them. The interest excited at the time was very great, but no natural explanation of the mystery has ever been suggested. In Ireland, the doppelganger, or as they would term it, the fetch, is a well-known part of the country folk's supernatural lore, where the double of one suffering from a mortal illness and confined to his bed is seen to stroll in an unhurried manner through a field, often then to unexpectedly vanish. If the fetch is seen in the morning, it is believed to foretell good fortune and a long life. If, however, the fetch is seen at night, it is believed to be a portent of death. If the fetch appears agitated or eccentric in its motions, a violent or painful death can be expected. While it is easy to dismiss such a belief as superstitious nonsense, William T. Steed records a correspondent in the north of England writing him with the following story. The most startling case that I know of is that of a clergyman who was once in charge of a parish in Ireland. Late one night he was sent for by a parishioner who was seriously ill. He had to pass from his house through the churchyard to the village. It was a beautiful moonlight night, and his brother, a medical man who happened to be staying with him at the time, accompanied him to the village and waited for his return from the sick room. On their way back to the parsonage, a figure glided past them in the churchyard, which they both saw distinctly in the moonlight and after proceeding so far along the path, it turned off and disappeared among the gravestones. As it was a most unusual incident at that time of night, they went to the place where they thought the disappearance had taken place, but not a trace could they find. The next morning they learned that the sick man had died, and more singular still, he was buried in the exact spot where the figure had disappeared. It is some time since I was told the story, but you had better write to the clergyman in question. Mr. Steed wrote to the clergyman, inquiring as to whether the incident had indeed occurred. I cannot imagine where you get your information from, the clergyman responded, but the facts of the case are as you have stated. What I saw, whether ghost or spectre, 
was seen by me in exceedingly bright moonlight as I returned from visiting a dying man across the churchyard of Fens, county of Wexford, in the year 1849. I was accompanied by one of my brothers, a captain, then staying with me, who also saw and recognized the spectre or phantom or ghost or whatever you may be pleased to call it. My own family are well acquainted with the fact. All the same, I never said I saw a ghost, but that I did see something I could not at all account for, and which at the time did not affect either of us as a ghost should have done by the hair of our heads standing up, etc., we were so little affected by what we saw that we followed the appearance in amongst the graves to find out what any person could possibly be doing there at that time. But the strange part of that matter is that two days after, I buried the man at the very spot where he disappeared. A final dramatic example of the fetch was recounted by the noted Irish folklorist Patrick Kennedy, who wrote, An unexplained mystery has been communicated to us. It is here given without any further commentary than our assurance of the good faith of our informant, who equally vouched for the veracity of her authorities, one of them being the principal witness of the apparition. In one of our Irish cities, and in a room where the mild moonbeams of a summer night were resting on the carpet and on a table near the window, Mrs. B., wife of a doctor in good practice and general esteem, looking towards this window from her pillow, was startled by the appearance of her husband standing near the table just mentioned and seeming to look with attention on a book that was lying open on it. Now the living and breathing man was lying by her side, apparently asleep, and greatly as she was surprised and affected, she had sufficient command of herself to remain without movement, lest she should expose him to the terror which she herself at the moment experienced. After gazing at the apparition for a few seconds, she bent her eyes on her husband to ascertain if his looks were turned in the direction of the window, but his eyes were closed. She turned round again, though dreading the sight of what she now felt certain to be her husband's fetch, but it was no longer there. She lay sleepless throughout the remainder of the night, but still bravely refrained from disturbing her partner. The next morning, Dr. B., seeing signs of disquiet in his wife's countenance while at breakfast, made some affectionate inquiries, but she concealed her trouble, and at his ordinary hour he sallied forth to make his calls. Meeting Dr. C. in the street, and falling into conversation with him, he asked his opinion on the subject of fetches. I think 
was the answer and so do you that they are mere illusions produced by a disturbed stomach acting upon the excitable brain of a highly imaginative or superstitious person then said dr b i am highly imaginative or superstitious for i distinctly saw my own outward man last night standing at the table in the bedroom and clearly distinguishable in the moonlight i am afraid my wife saw it too but i have been afraid to speak to her on the subject you have acted like a sensible man but now be off to your patience as i must run to mine about the same hour on the ensuing night the poor lady was again roused but by a more painful circumstance she felt her husband moving convulsively and immediately after he cried to her in low interrupted accents ellen dear i am suffocating send for dr c she sprang up huddled on some clothes and without waiting for the slow movements of the servant she ran to his house he came with all speed but his efforts for his friend were useless he had burst a large blood vessel in his lungs and was soon beyond human aid in the passionate lamentations which the bereaved wife could not restrain in the presence of the physician she frequently cried out the fetch the fetch at a later period she told him of the appearance the night before her husband's death and he thoroughly believed her statement this is mark lyon inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the other realm the other realm is a production of wind whistle theater our music was composed by dan heflin support for the other realm has been provided by hauntedisles.com offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie, a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts, by Mark Lyon and The Young Ghost Hunter's Handbook by Mark Lyon.